Chapter 15 of Fenton's Quest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lewis. Fenton's Quest by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 15 On the Track. Gilbert Fenton saw no more of his friend John Saltram after that Sunday evening which they had spent together in Cavendish Square. He called upon Mrs. Branston before the week was ended, and was so fortunate as to find that lady alone, Mrs. Pallinson having gone on a shopping expedition in her kinswoman's dashing brougham. The pretty little widow received Gilbert very graciously, but there was a slight shade of melancholy in her manner, a pensiveness which softened and refined her, Gilbert thought, nor was it long before she allowed him to discover the cause of her sadness. After a little conventional talk upon indifferent subjects, she began to speak of John Saltram. "'Have you seen much of your friend, Mr. Saltram, since Sunday?' she asked, with that vain endeavor to speak carelessly, with which a woman generally betrays her real feelings. I have not seen him at all since Sunday. He told me he was going back to Oxford, or the neighborhood of Oxford, I believe, almost immediately, and I have not troubled myself to hunt him up at his chambers. Gone back already? Mrs. Branston exclaimed, with a disappointed, petulant look that was half childish, half womanly. I cannot imagine what charm he finds in a dull village on the banks of the river. He has confessed that the place is the dreariest and most obscure in the world, and that he has neither shooting nor any other kind of amusement. There must be some mysterious attraction, Mr. Fenton. I think your friend is a good deal changed of late. Haven't you found him so? No, Mrs. Branston, I cannot say I have discovered any marked alteration in him since my return from Australia. John Saltram was always wayward and fitful. He may have been a little more so lately, perhaps, but that is all. You have a high opinion of him, I suppose. He is very dear to me. We were something more than friends in the ordinary acceptation of the word, do you remember the story of those two noble young Venetians who inscribed upon their shields Friars Nanamichi? Saltram and I have been brothers rather than friends. And you think him a good man? Adela asked anxiously. Most decidedly, I have reason to think so. I believe him to be a noble-hearted and honorable man, a little neglectful or disdainful of conventionalities, wearing his faith in God and his more sacred feelings anywhere than upon his sleeve, but a man who cannot fail to come right in the long run. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I have known Mr. Saltram some time, as you may have heard, and like him very much. But my cousin, Mrs. Pallinson, has quite an aversion to him, and speaks against him with such a positive air at times that I have been almost inclined to think she must be right. I am very inexperienced in the ways of the world, and am naturally disposed to lean a little upon the opinion of others. 
but don't you think there may be a reason for miss pallinson's dislike of my friend adela branston blushed at this question and then laughed a little i think i know what you mean she said yes it is just possible that miss pallinson may be jealously disposed towards any acquaintance of mine on account of that paragon of perfection her son theobald i have not been so blind as not to see her views in that quarter but be assured mr fenton that whatever may happen to me i shall never become mrs theobald pallinson i hope not i am quite ready to acknowledge mr pallinson's merits and accomplishments but i do not think him worthy of you it's rather awful isn't it for me to speak of marriage at all within a few months of my husband's death but when a woman has money people will not allow her to forget that she is a widow for ever so short a time but it is quite a question if i shall ever marry again i have very little doubt that real happiness is most likely to be found in a wise avoidance of all the perils and perplexities of that foolish passion which we read of in novels if one could only be wise don't you think so mr fenton my own experience inclines me to agree with you mrs branston gilbert answered smiling at the little woman's naivete your own experience has been unfortunate then i wish i were worthy of your confidence mr saltram told me some time ago that you were engaged to a very charming young lady the young lady in question has jilted me indeed and you are very angry with her of course i loved her too well to be angry with her i reserve my indignation for the scoundrel who stole her from me it is very generous of you to make excuses for the lady mrs branston said and would fain have talked longer of this subject but gilbert concluded his visit at this juncture not caring to discuss his troubles with the sympathetic widow he left the great gloomy gorgeous house in cavendish square more than ever convinced of adela branston's affection for his friend more than ever puzzled by john saltram's indifference to so advantageous an alliance within a few days of this visit gilbert fenton left london he had devoted himself unflinchingly to his business since his return to england and had so planned and organized his affairs as to be able now to absent himself for some little time from the city he was going upon what most men would have called a fool's errand his quest of marion's husband but he was going with a steady purpose in his breast a determination never to abandon the search till it should result in success he might have to suspend it from time to time should he determine to continue his commercial career but the purpose would be nevertheless the ruling influence of his life he had but one clue for his guidance in setting out upon this voyage of discovery miss long had told him that the newly married couple were to go to some farmhouse in hampshire which had been lent to mr holbrook by a friend it was in hampshire therefore that gilbert resolved to make his first inquiries he told himself that success was merely a question of time and patience the business of tracing these people who were not to be found by any public inquiry would be slow and wearisome no doubt 
He was prepared for that. He was prepared for a thousand failures and disappointments before he alighted on the one place in which Mr. Holbrook's name must needs be known, the town or village nearest to the farmhouse that had been lent to him. And even if, after unheard-of troubles and perseverances on his part, he should find the place he wanted, it was quite possible that Marian and her husband would have gone elsewhere, and his quest would have to begin afresh. But he fancied that he could hardly fail to obtain some information as to their plan of life, if he could find a place where they had stayed after their marriage. His own scheme of action was simple enough. He had only to travel from place to place, making careful inquiries at post offices and in all likely quarters at every stage of his journey. He went straight to Winchester, having a fancy for the quiet old city and the fair pastoral scenery surrounding it, and thinking that Mr. Holbrook's borrowed retreat might possibly be in this neighborhood. The business proved even slower and more tedious than he had supposed. There were so many farms round about Winchester, so many places which seemed likely enough, and to which he went, only to find that no person of the name of Holbrook had ever been heard of by the inhabitants. He made his headquarters in the cathedral city for nearly a week, and explored the country round, in a radius of thirty miles, without the faintest success. It was fine autumn weather, calm and clear, the foliage still upon the trees in all its glory of gold and brown, with patches of green lingering here and there in sheltered places. The country was very beautiful, and Gilbert Fenton's work would have been pleasant enough if the elements of peace had been in his breast, but they were not. Bitter regrets for all he had lost, uneasy fears and wild imaginings about the fate of her whom he still loved with a fond, useless passion. These and other gloomy thoughts haunted him day by day, clouding the calm loveliness of the scenes on which he looked until all outer things seemed to take their color from his own mind. He had loved Marian Noel as it is not given to many men to love, and with the loss of her it seemed to him as if the very springs of his life were broken. All the machinery of his existence was loosened and out of gear, and he could scarcely have borne the dreary burden of his days had it not been for that one feverish hope of finding the man who had wronged him. The week ended without bringing him in the smallest degree nearer the chance of success. Happily for himself, he had not expected to succeed in a week. On leaving Winchester, he started on a kind of vagabond tour through the county on a horse which he hired in the cathedral city and which carried him from twenty to thirty miles a day. This mode of traveling enabled him to explore obscure villages and out-of-the-way places that lay off the line of railway. Everywhere he made the same inquiries, everywhere with the same result. Another week came to an end. He had made his voyage of discovery through more than half of the county, as his pocket map told him, and he was still no nearer success than when he left London. He spent his Sunday at a comfortable inn in a quiet little town, where there was a curious old church, and a fine peal of bells that seemed to him to be ringing all day long. It was a dull, rainy day. 
he went to church in the morning and in the afternoon stood at the coffee-room window watching the townspeople go by to their devotions in an absent unseeing way and thinking of his own troubles pausing just a little now and then from that egotistical brooding to wonder how these people endured the dull monotonous round of their lives and what crosses and disappointments they had to suffer in their small obscure way the inn was very empty and the landlord waited upon mr fenton in person at his dinner gilbert had the coffee-room all to himself and it looked comfortable enough when the curtains were drawn the lamps lighted and the small dinner-table wheeled in front of a blazing fire i have been thinking over what you were asking me last night sir the host of the white swan began while gilbert was eating his fish and though i can't say that i ever heard the name of holbrook i fancy i may have seen the lady and gentleman you are looking for indeed exclaimed gilbert eagerly pushing away his plate and turning full on the landlord i hope you won't let me spoil your dinner sir i know that soul's fresh i'm a pretty good judge of these things and choose every bit of fish that's cooked in this house but as i was saying sir with regard to this lady and gentleman i think you said that the people you are looking for were strangers to this part of the country and were occupying a farmhouse that had been lent to them precisely well sir i remember some time in the early part of the year i think it must have been about march yes the people i am looking for would have arrived in march indeed sir that makes it seem likely i remember a lady and gentleman coming here from the railway station we've got a station close by our town as you know sir i dare say they wanted a fly to take them and their luggage on somewhere i can't for the life of me remember the name of the place but it was a ten-mile drive and it was a farm that i could swear to something farm if it had been a place i had known i think i should have remembered the name can i see the man who drove them gilbert asked quickly the young man that drove them sir has left me and left these parts a month come next tuesday where he is gone is more than i can tell you he was very good with horses but he turned out badly cheated me up hill and down dale as you may say though what hills and dales have got to do with it is more than i can tell and i was obliged to be rid of him that's provoking but if the people i want are anywhere within ten miles of this place i don't suppose i should be long finding them yet the mere fact of two strangers coming here and going on to some place called a farm seems very slight ground to go upon the month certainly corresponds with the time at which mr and mrs holbrook came to hampshire did you take any particular notice of them i took particular notice of the lady she was as pretty a woman as ever i set eyes on quite a girl i noticed that the gentleman was very careful and tender with her when he put her into the carriage wrapping her up and so on he looked a good deal older than her and i didn't much like his looks altogether could you describe him well no sir the time was short and he was wrapped up a good deal the collar of his overcoat turned up and a scarf round his neck he had dark eyes i remember and rather a stern look in them this was rather too vague a description to make any impression upon gilbert it was something certainly to know that his rival had dark eyes if indeed this man of whom the landlord spoke really were his rival 
he had never been able to make any mental picture of the stranger who had come between him and his betrothed he had been inclined to fancy that the man must needs be handsomer than himself possessed of every outward attribute calculated to subjugate the mind of an inexperienced girl like marian but the parish clerk at wygrove and mrs long had both spoken in disparaging tone of mr holbrook's personal appearance and remembering this he was fain to believe that marian had been won by some charm more subtle than that of a handsome face he went on eating his dinner in silence for some little time meditating upon what the landlord had told him then as the man cleared the table lingering over his work as if eager to impart any stray scraps of information he might possess gilbert spoke to him again i should have fancied that as a settled inhabitant of this place you would be likely to know every farm and farmhouse within ten miles or within twenty miles he said well sir i dare say i do know the neighborhood pretty well in a general way but i think if i'd known the name of the place this lady and gentleman were going to it would have struck me more than it did and i should have remembered it i was uncommonly busy though that afternoon for it was a market day and there were a mort of people going in and out i never did interfere much with the fly business it was only by taking the gentleman out some soda and brandy that i came to take the notice i did of the lady's looks and his care of her i know it was a ten-mile drive and then i told the gentleman the fare so as there might be no bother between him and william tyler my man at the end and he agreed to it in a liberal off-hand kind of way like a man who doesn't care much for money as to farms within ten miles of here there are a dozen at least one way and another and some small and some large do you know of any place in the ownership of a gentleman who would be likely to lend his house to a friend i can't say i do sir there are tenant farmers about here mostly and rather a roguish lot as you may say there's a place over beyond crosborough ten miles off and more i don't know the name of it or the person it belongs to but i've noticed it many a time as i've driven by a curious old-fashioned house standing back off one of the lanes out of crosborough with a large garden before it a queer lonesome place altogether i should take it to be two or three hundred years old and i shouldn't think the house had had money spent upon it within the memory of man it's a dilapidated tumble-down old gazebo of a place and yet there's a kind of prettiness about it in the summer-time when the garden is full of flowers there's a river runs through some of the land about a half mile from the house what kind of place is crosber a bit of a village on the road from here to portsmouth the house i'm telling you about is a mile from crosborough at the least away from the main road there's two or three lanes or by-roads about there and it lies in one of them that turns sharp off by the blue boar which is about the only inn where you can bait a horse thereabouts i'll ride over there to-morrow morning and have a look at this queer old house you might give me the names of any other farms you know about this neighborhood and their occupants this the landlord was very ready to do he ran over the names of from ten to fifteen places which gilbert jotted down upon a leaf of his pocket-book afterwards planning his round upon the map of the county which he carried for his guidance he set out early the next morning under a low gray sky with clouds in the distance that threatened rain 
the road from the little market town to Crosborough possessed no especial beauty. The country was flat and uninteresting about here, and needed the glory of its summer verdure to brighten and embellish it. But Mr. Fenton did not give much thought to the scenes through which he went at this time. The world around and about him was all of one color, the sunless gray which pervaded his own life. Today the low dull sky and the threatening clouds far away upon the level horizon harmonized well with his own thoughts, with the other hopelessness of his mind. Hopelessness? Yes, that was the word. He had hazarded all upon this one chance, and its failure was the shipwreck of his life. The ruin was complete. He could not build up a new scheme of happiness. In the full maturity of his manhood, his fate had come to him. He was not the kind of man who can survive the ruin of his plans, and begin afresh with other hopes and still fairer dreams. It was his nature to be constant. In all his life, he had chosen for himself only one friend. In all his life, he had loved but one woman. He came to the little village, with its low sloping-roofed cottages, whose upper stories abutted upon the road and overshadowed the casements below, and where here and there a few pennyworths of gingerbread that seemed moldy with the mold of ages, a glass pickle bottle of bull's-eyes or sugar-sticks, and half a dozen penny bottles of ink indicated the commercial tendencies of Crosber. A little farther on he came to a rickety-looking corner house, with a steep thatched roof overgrown by stone-crop and other parasites, which was evidently the shop of the village, inasmuch as one side of the window exhibited a show of homely drapery, while the other side was devoted to groceries, and a shelf above laden with great sprawling loaves of bread. This establishment was also the post-office, and here Gilbert resolved to make his customary inquiries when he had put up his horse. Almost immediately, opposite this general emporium, the sign of the blue boar swung proudly across the street in front of a low, rather dilapidated-looking hostelry with a wide frontage and an archway leading into a spacious, desolate yard where one gloomy cock of Spanish descent was crowing hoarsely on the broken roof of a shed surrounded by four or five shabby-looking hens all in the most woebegone state of molting and appearing as if eggs were utterly remote from their intentions. This blue boar was popularly supposed to have been a most distinguished and prosperous place in the coaching days, when twenty coaches passed daily through the village of Crosber, and was even now much affected as a place of resort by the villagers to the sore vexation of the rector and such good people as believed in the perfectibility of the human race and the ultimate suppression of public houses. Here Mr. Fenton dismounted and surrendered his horse to the keeping of an unkempt, bareheaded youth who emerged from one of the dreary-looking buildings in the yard, announcing himself as the hosteller, and led off the steed in triumph to a wilderness of a stable, where the landlord's pony and a fine colony of rats were luxuriating in the space designed for some twelve or fifteen horses. 
Having done this, Gilbert crossed the street to the post office, where he found the proprietor, a deaf old man, weighing half pounds of sugar in the background, while a brisk, sharp-looking girl stood behind the counter sorting a little packet of letters. It was to the damsel, as the more intelligent of these two, that Gilbert addressed himself, beginning, of course, with the usual questions. Did she know anyone, a stranger sojourning in that neighborhood, called Holbrook? The girl shook her head without a moment's hesitation. No, she knew no one of that name. And I suppose all the letters for people in this neighborhood pass through your hands? Yes, sir, all of them. I couldn't have failed to notice if there had been anyone of that name. Gilbert gave a little weary sigh. The information given him by the landlord of the White Swan had seemed to bring him so very near the object of his search, and here he was thrown back all at once upon the wide field of conjecture, not a whit nearer any certain knowledge. It was true that Crosber was only one among several places within ten miles of the market town, and the strangers who had been driven from the White Swan in March last might have gone to any one of these other locations. His inquiries were not finished yet, however. There is an old house about a mile from here, he said to the girl, a house belonging to a farm, in the lane yonder that turns off by the blue boar. Have you any notion to whom it belongs, or who lives there? An old house in that lane across the way, the girl said, reflecting. That's Golders Lane and leads to Golders Green. There's not many houses there. It's rather a lonesome kind of place. Do you mean a big old-fashioned house standing far back in a garden? Yes, that must be the place I want to know about. It must be the grain, surely. It was a gentleman's house once. But there's only a bailiff lives there now. The farm belonged to some gentleman down in Midlandshire. A baronet. I can't call to mind his name at this moment, though I have heard it often enough. Mr. Carley's daughter, Carley is the name of the bailiff at the Grange, comes here for all they want. Gilbert gave a little start at the name of Midlandshire. Lidford was in Midlandshire. Was it not likely to be a Midlandshire man who had lent Marion's husband his house? Do you know if these people at the Grange have had anyone staying with them lately? Any lodgers? he asked the girl. Yes, they have lodgers pretty well every summer. There were some people this year, a lady and a gentleman, but they never seem to have any letters, and I can't tell you their names. Are they living there still? I can't tell you that. I used to see them at church now and then in the summer time, but I haven't seen them lately. There's a church at Golders Green almost as near, and they may have been there. Will you tell me what they were like? Gilbert asked eagerly. His heart was beating loud and fast, making a painful tumult in his breast. He felt assured that he was on the track of the people whom the innkeeper had described to him the people who were, in all probability, Mr. and Mrs. Holbrook. The lady is very pretty and very young, quite a girl. The gentleman, older, dark, and not handsome. Yes, had the lady gray eyes and dark brown hair and a very bright, expressive face? Yes, sir. 
Pray try to remember the name of the gentleman to whom the Grange belongs. It is of great importance to me to know that. I asked my father, sir, the girl answered good-naturedly. He's pretty sure to know. She went across the shop to the old man who was weighing sugar and bawled her question into his ear. He scratched his head in a meditative way for some moments. I've heard the name times and often, he said, though I never set eyes upon the gentleman. William Carey has been bailiff at the Grange these twenty years, and I don't believe as the owner has ever come by the place in all that time. Let me see, it's a common name enough, though the gentleman is a baronite. Foster, that's it, sir, something Foster. Sir David, cried Gilbert. You hit it, sir, Sir David Foster, that's the gentleman. Sir David Foster. He had little doubt after this that the strangers at the Grange had been Marion and her husband. Treachery, blackest treachery somewhere. He had questioned Sir David, and had received his positive assurance that this man Holbrook was unknown to him. And now, against that, there was the fact that the baronet was the owner of a place in Hampshire, to be taken in conjunction with that other fact that a place in Hampshire had been lent to Mr. Holbrook by a friend. At the very first, he had been inclined to believe that Marion's lover must needs be one of the worthless bachelor crew with which the baronet was accustomed to surround himself. He had only abandoned that notion after his interview with Sir David Foster, and now it seemed that the baronet had deliberately lied to him. It was, of course, just possible that he was on a false scent after all, and that it was to some other part of the country Mr. Holbrook had brought his bride. But such a coincidence seemed, at least, highly improbable. There was no occasion for him to remain in doubt very long, however. At the Grange, he must needs be able to obtain more definite information. End of chapter 15